0: The scripture reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 29 through 46. So then please open your Bibles to John 6, verses 29 through 46. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on page 76 in the New Testament portion. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated
1: confession to make, I guess. Again, um, the title in your bulletin and on the, on the sermon notes is different than what the sermon wound up being today. Um, just as of four o'clock this morning, the message changed drastically. So I woke up at 3.30 and my mind just was shot through with the realization that there's something in this text that I was not preaching that needs to be preached before we move on to the message that was supposed to be for today. And so as of right now, we're going to spend today, this week, next week, and the week after in this section of John, John 6, really it's verse 30 through um, 46, we'll be, we'll be spending the next three weeks in this passage. Uh, today, the, the title for today is, rather than uh, given and drawn, the title is Testing and Rejecting. Testing and Rejecting. And it's going to focus on John 6, uh, verses 30 through 36. So if you have that written down, you can kind of follow along with me. Kids, that's why you don't have a kid's bulletin today. I didn't have time to put it together, and uh, uh, Miss Jamie did not have time to put it together for me. So well, with that said, let's pray and let's ask for the Lord to bless us, to fill us with knowledge of his word and his will, and to give us strength in his spirit and in Christ to obey it. Lord, that is indeed our prayer. Oh, you are our refuge and our mighty fortress as we have opened and closed our time of, of singing and worshiping you in song with those declarations. You are a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And Lord, as we celebrate the, the, the history of the Reformation this week and remember the, the great faithful work that you have been doing and accomplishing in this world um, throughout the whole history of your church, but as we see, especially with that light breaking through the darkness during the time of the Reformation and recovering the gospel from the clutches of an errant and, and, and adulterous gospel that had taken root, Lord, we. We thank you for preserving your truth and preserving the name of Christ in this world and continuing to, to, to fulfill that faithful work of building your church, Lord Jesus. You, you promised you will build your church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her, Lord. And we see the evidence of that now over 2,000 years in the working And we are so thankful, Lord, that we can declare you are our mighty fortress and we even see your faithfulness building us up here at Oak Ridge Community Church. Lord, we thank you that you've planted us here in Stillwater. We thank you that you've called us to belong to you, to be faithful to you, to rejoice in your truth and to live it out for the world to see. I pray, Father, that in the name of Jesus Christ, you would allow us to be lights set upon a stand. Lord, and so that we might give light to the whole room and to everyone in that room, no matter where we are. Lord, may we never be like lamps that are lit and then hidden under a basket. Lord, may we never be a city that is not set upon a hill shining the light of the gospel uh, for all to see. May we, may we be the salt and be the light that you want us to be in this world. That's how change is affected and that's how the gospel will continue to go forth with power so give us grace to do that Lord and I pray that as we turn to your word here in John 6 this morning I do ask you Lord I ask you as the faithful God would you please take this truth the truths that are revealed here unfold them before us and open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things out of them and unite our hearts to fear your name And to walk in the fear of the Lord in light of what we see here in this passage. Lord, may we not be guilty of testing you. And may we not be guilty of rejecting you. Lord, give us grace to taste and to see that the Lord is good. To know the blessedness that belongs to all who take refuge in you. Please unfold that before us. And to us this morning, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be present among us powerfully. And we lift high the name of Jesus, and we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Um, All right, so last week, we looked at verses 22 to 29, where we saw a couple of things. Uh, First of all, we saw Jesus rebuking this crowd that was seeking him, right, and he wasn't rebuking them because they were seeking him. He was rebuking them because they were seeking him for the wrong reason. And so we see in verse 26 that they were not seeking him because they saw signs. That is, they weren't seeking him because they saw what he did and understood its significance. It's not why they were seeking him. They were seeking him because they ate of the loaves and were filled. right? They just like a herd of animals that had been uh, fed fodder, they had glutted themselves. They had fattened themselves up. On this bread that Jesus had supernaturally provided, and while feeding the flesh, they had neglected to have their souls fed on the significance of what their own eyes were seeing. And then Jesus turns from rebuking them to exhorting them, right? And we see that in verse 29, where he tells them, in verse 27 and 29, he tells them, stop laboring and expending themselves for bread that perishes, but rather to work for the bread that endures to eternal life. Verse 27, Jesus says, I promise you, I will give you the bread that endures if you work for that bread and not the bread that perishes. And when they ask him what they need to do in order to work the works of God and to get that bread, Jesus says in verse 29, this is the work of God. This is the only work that matters, that, that you believe in me as the one who has sent From the Father, that is what gets the bread that endures to eternal life. Now we unpacked a little bit about how faith can be described as a work, and I hope that was clear in the message last week. I don't hope the presentation of it was clear, but let me just give a, a, a few words here. You know, John Calvin described this well. He said that that if faith is a work, it's a passive work. And what he meant by that is it's a work of receiving, not a work of accomplishing. So that's the point that Jesus is getting at with these Jews. He's trying to draw a contrast in their minds between the work that they thought they needed to do. Hey, Jesus, tell us all the works that we need to do in order to be working the works of God so that we can get that life. We'll do it. You just tell us what those works are. Jesus is drawing a line between what their expectations were and what he was actually asking of them. No, 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 no. You don't understand. It's not that kind of work. It's believing that is required. You must believe. You must must do the work of renouncing your own works and receiving the work of another. That's, That's what it is all contingent upon. Will you rest Will you receive and rest in me as the only thing that is necessary for your salvation? Or will you receive and rest in your own works as you seek to labor for it? Right? That's the contrast there. And uh, faith, faith is a work, but it's a work of renouncing hope in everything else and putting our full reliance in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Lord Jesus Christ alone turning to him, turning from our sin to him as our king and savior and humbly submitting to his rule, trusting in his promises of salvation and not letting any other hope intrude upon that trust. That's that's the work of faith. This is why the reformers described it uh, best as faith being an empty hand. It is reaching up to God with an empty hand. It's not offering him anything Uh, for salvation. It is reaching up with an empty hand to receive what we need for salvation from him, which is Jesus Christ. You can't take hold of Jesus Christ when you're holding on to some other hope. You've got to let go of whatever it is in order to receive Jesus. So. So that's what Jesus unfolds for them. And we saw that last week. The only thing that's required is that they believe. That's the spring out of which all other obedience in the Christian life must flow. You must have faith in Jesus before you can truly obey God in any other way. And so that's what's, that's what's required. That's the foundation. And that's what Jesus calls them to. Now, when we come to verse 30 in John 6, we find that the Jews understood what he was calling them to do as far as putting their faith in Jesus. But they were not yet convinced that they were ready to do that. They responded in verse 30 to Jesus' call to believe in him by saying, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? You see that? Jesus says, here's what's required if you want to be saved. If you want the bread that endures to eternal life, you must believe in me. And they say, okay, all right, fine. What sign do you do so that we might see that sign and believe in you? In other words, prove yourself to us, Jesus. Prove to us that you are trustworthy. That is worthy of our faith, worthy of our trust.
2: Isn't that amazing in your mind?
1: When I hear, when I read, every time I've read them say that in this this passage, I've thought, really? Like, did you seriously just say that? What sign do you do so that we might see it and believe? Hadn't he just done a sign the day before? A miraculous sign of multiplying five barley loaves, five tiny little Twinkie sized loaves of bread, and two little herring-sized fish, didn't he just multiply that out to feed a crowd of almost 15,000 people? Isn't that amazing enough? Doesn't that show something about the significance of the person who did that sign? And besides that, you remember from, from chapter 6, verse 2, the only reason this crowd was following Jesus to begin with was because of all the signs they knew he was already doing. So why is it that here they come to Jesus and when Jesus lays down the one command of the gospel for them to obey in order to be saved, they say, whoa, wait a second, wait a second, you haven't done enough for us to be able to trust you like that.
2: Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a wicked, depraved heart.
1: That is seeking after selfish desires and signs and wonders and seeking to be wowed rather than seeking a true relationship with the God of glory. They had seen all these things that Jesus was doing. They had heard of everything Jesus was was doing with his his many signs and miracles. But apparently none of that was enough to convince them that Jesus was trustworthy. You know, that's a, just a parenthesis here, that's a problem that's the problem with the kind of faith that is a sign-seeking faith. Right? It's, it, it, no matter how many signs are done, it will never be enough to convince the skeptic. No matter how many signs were done, it would never lead to genuine and sincere faith in Jesus. Let's just say, for instance, Jesus submitted to their desire to continue making bread for them and to show his mighty deeds in that way and continued to draw them after following him in this way by giving them the bread that they were seeking. If Jesus had done that, what would be the result? Would their faith ever truly be put in Jesus as the Son of God, Savior of the world? Or would it be in Jesus, the sign worker, the miracle worker who gives us bread? It would be the latter, not the former. And what what would the end result be? They would perish and go to hell. Because they didn't have genuine saving faith in Christ. See, no matter how how many miracles Jesus may have done for them, it would never have led this crowd into sincere faith in him because theirs was a trust that was being built upon carnal expectations and selfish desires. And if Jesus wanted them to trust in him, their expectation was, you do what we want and then I'll trust in you. You meet and you satisfy my expectations of you And then I will give you my faith. What were the expectations that these people were looking for? We see that in verse 31. They said to Jesus, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Boy, now things are getting serious. Right? This crowd is starting to quote Scripture at Jesus and trying to get him to comply with what the Scriptures say. Jesus, it's written, he gave the fathers bread out of heaven. Forty years in the wilderness. What are they really saying whenever they draw a comparison between what they expect Jesus to be doing in order to gain their trust... And quoting this passage from the Old Testament about the fathers being fed manna in the wilderness. What is, Je- what, are, what is the crowd trying to get Jesus to do? They're trying to get him to do the same thing, right? It had been expected, in fact, for a long time that when the Messiah came... The same miracles that Moses had performed and all the other prophets had performed would begin to uh, be revived, and they would be performed in the same way all over again, and that would be the sign that the Messiah had finally arrived. And so this Jewish, you can read about that, by the way, in Second Baruch chapter 29. It's a, it's a book that was written contemporaneously with the life of Jesus. It's not a, an Old Testament apocryphal book. It's a pseudepigraphal book, if you guys want to know the technical term for that, but It reflects that very idea in chapter 29 that when the Messiah comes, he's going to multiply bread the way it was multiplied under the the leading of Moses. And here this crowd is quoting this verse back to Jesus and saying, listen, Jesus, this is what Moses did to prove to our fathers that they could trust him and his message. Is it too much for us to be asking you to do the same thing so that we can trust in you and in your message? Moses didn't just give them bread for one day. Moses gave them bread for 40 years. Sure, you can multiply bread once, but can you do it again? And can you do it again? And can you do it again?
2: You see the problem there, right?
1: When you treat Jesus like that, and you make obedience to Jesus conditioned upon what Jesus is going to do for you, What happens when he stops doing it? Who's on the chopping block in that scenario? Jesus is perpetually being tested by you, at least with that kind of perspective. Jesus, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do it again? Can you do it again? When you do those things, Jesus, then I will put my faith in you. You know, that's a far more common and far more subtle but that's a far more common attitude in our day, even if it manifests more subtly. Now, And I'm not talking about the charismatic, uh, you know, wings of the charismatic movement or, or, or the health, wealth, prosperity gospel type wings of that movement where, where you're only in favor with God if he's blessing you with material riches. Right? I remember seeing people mourning in, down in Guatemala over the fact that God had not heard their prayers. Obviously, they were not saved because this kind of blessing had not been given to them. They hadn't gotten the car that they have been praying for. The house didn't come through the way that they were expecting it. And so their faith in Jesus was being rocked by the fact that Jesus wasn't giving them everything they wanted. But that's not the kind of crowd I'm talking about. There's a far more subtle Way that people manifest the same kind of expectation of Jesus in our day as a condition for believing in Jesus. And you see it all over the place. If there were a God, then why did he let that happen?
2: If God truly loved me,
1: why don't I have the spouse I wanted? Why did I lose my job? If God is truly for me, why did my car break down? Why is my health in disarray? If God loved me, wouldn't all of those things be in place? You go out on the street and you begin witnessing to people about Christ and you will hear over and over and over again that their, their one main excuse for not believing in Jesus ultimately boils down to this. Jesus didn't meet all their expectations. Therefore, they walked away from him. That's the kind of faith or the kind of following that this crowd is giving to Jesus in John chapter 6. And Jesus will have none of it. Right? This is Matthew 12, 39. Jesus said, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after signs. Right? It's adulterous because those who seek after signs and have signs as the foundation of their faith in Jesus, they're going to turn away from God the moment that those signs stop coming. So it's an adulterous generation generation that seeks after signs but it's also an evil generation it's evil because it places the one seeking the sign in the judgment seat over and against God that's what's so evil about what these Jews were doing here they were they're testing Jesus they're sitting in judgment over him and demanding that he submit himself to what they expected from him otherwise they would not believe Yeah, I don't know. John Calvin put it, put it very well in his commentary. He said, the problem here is that, in short, as soon as Christ does not grant their prayers, he is no longer their master. That's the essence of what is happening here. As soon as Christ does not answer their prayers, he's no longer their master. That's what they're asking for. They're asking for Jesus to give them everything that they are desiring from him. And when Jesus says no, they refuse to believe. You know, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus does not come to this world as a beggar. Jesus doesn't come to this world begging and pleading for just someone to give him a chance, just to show that he is truly loving and faithful. I will come and I'll be your co-pilot if you just open the passenger door and let me in. That's not the king of glory and that's not how Jesus has approached us, is it? He has come to us as the king of glory. He has come upon us as one who isn't asking and pleading and begging for our allegiance, but as one who is demanding our allegiance. He has a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is given to him by his Father. All the nations of the world will bow and submit and serve the Son. Jesus does not need us to give him our approval in order for his kingship to be real. He doesn't need us to legitimize his reign and his rule over this world. The Father has already done that. The command of Jesus is for us to submit to it. Submit to his demands. He doesn't come begging and pleading for our smiles. He doesn't get shaken whenever he's met with our frowns and our doubts. This is uh, Matthew 11, 16 through 17. Jesus speaks of this evil generation that he's speaking to in in Jerusalem and in Judea. He says, uh, this is what this generation is like. It's like petulant children sitting out in the marketplace saying, we played our flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. We, we sang a dirge for you, but you wouldn't mourn with us. See, Jesus doesn't come submitting to the expectations of those to whom he comes. He comes calling upon them to submit to his expectations. See, the standard of what Jesus... This is, this, is, this is what we need to take away from this. The standard of what Jesus chooses to do or not do in our lives is not our own arbitrary, selfish, and self-serving desires. The standard of Jesus' faithfulness to us and the standard of what Jesus is seeking to accomplish in our lives is not our own arbitrary, self-centered, and self-serving desires. Jesus' standard is the glory of His Father. And he's going to do whatever he has to do in your life to see the maximum amount of glory radiate to his father as can come from a redeemed sinner. He's not after your
2: temporal comforts as much as he's after your eternal salvation.
1: Jesus is weaning us off of sin and he's weaning us off of the things of the world. And the primary way that he chooses to do that is by not giving those things to us. You understand that, right? When Jesus is withholding things from you in your life, no matter what it is, Everything from your wife, your husband, your parents, your children, all the way over to your job, food, success, career. If Jesus is withholding anything from you, it's for your good. The challenge of faith is to rise up and say, Jesus is my shepherd, and I'm going to trust him in this moment, regardless of what he ordains for me, because whatever my God ordains is right. That's the kind of faith Jesus is after in our lives. That's not the kind of faith that was being manifested by this crowd that was seeking Him. And so Jesus is not going to interact with them and He's not going to play to them. He's not going to cater to their desires for seeking Him. You know, Jesus is after the glory of His Father. He's after. The ordering of his kingdom in such a way that the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, starting with your own heart. And that's what Jesus is laboring for in your life. Is that enough for you, regardless of the cost? Or is it too costly for you to follow a Jesus like that? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Well, it wasn't enough for this Jewish crowd, And we find in verse 32, Jesus' response to their demand, at least the beginning of that response, he says in verse 32, in in response to, to their demand that he be like Moses, that he do what Moses did in order to prove himself to them, then they'll believe in him. Jesus says in response to that expectation, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but... It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Now, there's a big but in the middle of that verse, like a huge but. It's Allah in Greek, and it's it's not just day. So in Greek, day can be used the way that we might use but, like, you know, I went to the store, but they didn't have any Pringles. I, I went to the gas station, but they were out of gas. Like we might use day like that, but whenever, whenever Allah is not Allah as in Islam Allah, but whenever Allah is being used in Greek, it is a very strong, contrastive word. So it's, it's, it's emphasizing very strongly to us, this is not true, but this is. So what is Jesus contrasting so strongly here in response to what they're expecting? Well, we can understand what he's saying here in two different ways. One, Jesus could be drawing the contrast between the persons that are mentioned. In other words, the emphasis of what Jesus says in verse 32 could be on Moses and my father. So, Moses did not give you the bread, my father gives you bread. That's that could be the emphasis. Right? So so in this view, the Jews, in other words, Jesus would be rebuking the Jews because they were guilty of attributing the greatness of a miracle, the giving of manna in the wilderness. They were guilty of attributing the greatness of the miracle to the greatness of the man under which the miracle was done. So, so Moses, this great messenger from God, Moses, he gave us manna in the wilderness for 40 years. Look at how great a man he was. And then, and then the response here, a way of understanding this, it could be Jesus saying, no, 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 no. It was not ever Moses that was giving you that bread. It was always God, my Father, who was giving the bread to you. And by the way, he's giving it to you now. And you know, in light of the human tendency to think more highly of men than God, even within the church, I can understand that emphasis and take it to heart. Right? John 5, verse 45, it says that the Jews actually had put their hope in Moses. Like, Moses was the object of what they were hoping in. Like, Moses is what they hoped in. And you see this play out more in the gospel in John nine twenty eight, uh, where they say emphatically, you might be a disciple of this Jesus, but we... We are disciples of Moses. We're the true people of God because we're following Moses. You know, we can often be guilty of doing that same thing. Of putting too much hope or thinking too highly of gifted and spiritual leaders I mean, we see that in the New Testament, in the apostolic era. We find, we find Christians, true Christians, being drawn away from a purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ and, and, and giving it over to men. Right, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, right? The Corinthians were guilty of this. Paul looks at them who were, who were exalting men beyond what was proper and saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, oh yeah, well, I'm of Christ." Paul Paul rebukes all of that and he says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They're nothing more than servants through whom each one of you believed as God gave the opportunity. It wasn't us who came to you and manipulated you into believing. We were simply servants of the word and God did the rest. This is what Martin Luther said during the time of the Reformation, right? Someone asked him, what, what, what do you attribute all of this rise in gospel proclamation to? And, and basically he says, I, I did nothing. I simply spoke the word and the word of God did the rest. Paul says, stop thinking more highly of men than you ought to think. What are we? We're nothing but servants. As, and each one of you believe through our ministry as God gave the opportunity. He says, I, I, I planted. Yes, I planted. Apollos, yes, he watered, but it was God ultimately who was causing the growth. So stop exalting us as if we were the foundation of your faith. Stop boasting in man who is nothing more than a tool in the hand of God. Or to put it the way Jeremiah would put it, stop boasting in man who is nothing more than a nose full of air at a time. You know, in our our time of celebrity preacherism and pastorism, I think that's a rebuke that we can all take to heart, right? We all have our pastors and our preachers that we exalt and we hold up as the epitome of faithful shepherding. Well, as I've seen already in 36 years of life, when I have an idol like that, the Lord always, always shatters that idol in my heart, (laughs) always shows me that that man has feet of clay and he doesn't stand next to the king of glory. So, well, some believe, some do believe that that's what Jesus is saying here. You are thinking too highly of Moses and you're not giving glory to God the way you should. Right? So that some do see that as a rebuke in this verse, but there's a second way to understand the emphasis here. There's a second view where the emphasis that contrast is not on the persons, but on what the persons give. And I think that that's right. So in other words, the emphasis of Jesus is not on, Moses didn't give you the bread, my Father gives you the bread. Rather, it's on, Moses didn't give you heavenly bread, but my Father gives you true heavenly bread. So the focus is on the bread, what was given. And I, as I said, I think that's the right way to understand this. Let me explain why. Oh, my goodness, we are. Okay. Sorry, that was a, a little um, uh, circuit malfunction there. I just saw the clock. I saw the, uh, I, looked, I looked at my watch and it totally uh, derailed me. All right. I think this is the right view. Moses did not give you the heavenly bread, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. And let me give you a couple of reasons why I think that's the right way to understand this. Number 1, notice the tense difference in this verse. Moses it was not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. That's past tense. It's something that happened in the past, and it's even presented here as a, as a perfect. I, I can't recall in Greek whether that's a perfect or not, but that would mean something that happened in the past that has continuing effect. continuing results in the present. It is perfect, Thank you, brother. It's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you bread, the true bread, out of heaven. That's present tense. And in Greek, the emphasis there is on the continual present action of what God is doing. So if Moses had given you bread out of heaven, then my father would not now be giving you the true bread out of heaven. See, that's that's the contrast here. Yeah, and then you notice also that adjective, right? The bread that Moses gave was bread out of heaven. The bread that the father gives is bread true bread out of heaven. In other words, they wanted Jesus, these Jews were asking Jesus to give them more of the same kind of bread that Moses had given them. But Jesus' point is that Moses had not given them true heavenly bread. And how do we know that? Well, simply put, we know that because that bread did not impart heavenly life to the souls of those who partook in it. For example, Jesus says that in verse 49, down in John 6. He says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and what happened to them all? They died. They died. Now, we we hear that and we think, well, yeah, of course they physically died. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Because even followers of Christ who do eat the true bread of heaven, even us who are living right now, who are feasting on the true bread of heaven in Christ, even we are going to come to the point where we're going to die physically. Prior, if, if, we, if, the, if Christ does not return for his second glorious coming, you and I are going to be dying. We're going to be tasting physical death. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, they ate the bread in the wilderness and they died. He's talking about spiritual death here. Remember the history. Remember the account of what happened in the wilderness. How many of those Israelites who came out of Egypt, who were redeemed by God out of slavery in Egypt, how many of them spent their entire lives in the wilderness feasting on the bread that Moses gave them and yet did so all the while being spiritually dead towards God? I mean, Moses, remember what Moses says at the end of his life in Deuteronomy, right? Chapter 29, verse 4, for example. Moses can look at the Israelites and he can say, to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear. You still don't have a true relationship with Yahweh. After 40 years of feeding them this bread, they still had not gotten the point. Uh, Deuteronomy 31 verse 27, Moses says to them, I know, that you, I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I'm still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more so will you be rebellious against him after my departure? See, Moses was lamenting over the state and the, the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. All the bread that he gave them for 40 years had done nothing to impact their souls. It had only given them nourishment in their bodies. And that's the point that Jesus is making in this passage. And we see that brought out in verse 33 of John 6. Look Look with me there. All the bread that Moses gave them, it did not impart to those who partook of it true heavenly spiritual life. They ate of it and they died. Verse 33, I mean, hang on, pause, back up rewind. What happened to that entire generation who came out of Egypt before they they came back around to the promised land, the borders, to go take the land that God had promised? That whole generation died. That's Jesus' point. It was that generation that saw all the mighty miracles and the signs. It was that generation that experienced God walking with them, leading them through the wilderness. And it was that very generation that died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Verse 33, he draws this contrast more plainly. He says, For the bread of God, that is the true heavenly bread that endures to eternal life, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and actually gives life to the world. That's the difference between what the Jews wanted and what Jesus came to give. They wanted more physical bread. They wanted more signs. They wanted more wonders. They wanted to be wowed in their carnal imaginations over what Jesus was doing. Please, Jesus, keep doing these cool things because we really love it whenever you demonstrate your power like that. That's not the kind of bread Jesus came to give. Jesus came to put real, spiritual, heavenly life into the souls of all who will come to Him in order to receive it. That's the Father's bread that was sent down from heaven to give life to the world, is Jesus Christ. Now, verse thirty-four. This crowd picks up on something that just stokes their carnal desires even more. All right, and follow me here. You guys with me? Still engaged? Your hearts are still inflamed and they're burning within you? Well, may it be. Verse 34, this crowd picked up on something that was stoking their carnal desires even more than before. Right? They, they hear the contrast that Jesus is making between the bread that Moses came to give and the bread that he's going to give, but their minds are still trapped in thinking about it in terms of the physical, They get excited. They say in verse 34, yes, yes, Jesus, that's the kind of bread we want. Always give us this bread. But they misunderstood the emphasis of what Jesus was saying. See, they hear the contrast that Jesus is making, that he didn't come to give more of that same old bread, but he came to give new bread, and they misunderstood the emphasis. They, misunder- they misinterpreted what he was saying. They interpreted him through the lens of the hyper-literal. I'll say that. They did not interpret him the way he intended them to interpret him. right? And this is the same pattern that we're seeing all throughout the Gospel of John. Right? So, so, for example, in John chapter 2, Right? Jesus didn't come to give more of the old temple. Jesus came to introduce a time of a new spiritual temple. But none of the Jews in John chapter 2 understood what he was saying. Or John chapter 3. Jesus comes to Nicodemus, and he, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus, excuse me, at night. And he starts talking to him about the kingdom of heaven and, and how he knows Jesus is sent from God. And Jesus looks back at him and he says, not until you're born again, Nicodemus. You can't enter into the kingdom of God until you're born again. In other words, Jesus didn't come to give more of the old kind of birth, right? Being born a Jew, being circumcised. Jesus came to give the new kind of birth, the spiritual birth, circumcision of the soul and of the heart. Or John chapter 4, Jesus is at the the, the well in Samaria, and the the woman at the well comes to Jesus, and he says to her, "If, if, if you come to me, I will give you living water that will well up in you unto eternal life. And she says, well, wait, you don't have a bucket to sit down in the well. How are you going to give me water? She missed it. She was interpreting his words literally, not spiritually, the way that Christ intended her to. That's the same thing that's going on here in John 6. Jesus wasn't here to give more of the old bread. Because that did not impart any spiritual life to those who ate of it. He came to give better bread, different bread. Now the Jews heard that and they said, yes, Lord, always give us this bread. We want that better bread than what Moses gave. But just like all the other Jews in relation to what Jesus was teaching them throughout the Gospel of John so far, they took took it literally and carnally rather than spiritually. The way it was intended. John 6.35 is Jesus' response to their plea. He says, you don't understand. You still don't get it. I didn't come here to be the bread giver. I came here because I am the bread. You want me to give you something else, but what you're failing to recognize is that I'm it. It's all about me. I am the bread of life. There's nothing else that the Father's going to give you. It's either
2: me or it's nothing.
1: Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am what the Father has sent down from heaven to give life to the world. And believing in me is how you're going to receive the life that I came to give. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, there's something really, really important to notice about the way Jesus expands the conversation right there. And I recognize we're bumping up against the limits of our time for today, so I'm probably just going to stop right here and just pick up right where I leave off here, and we'll keep flowing next week. But there's something really important to notice about how Jesus expands this conversation. In response to their desire for bread, Jesus begins speaking about bread and drink. He's now saying that not only is he the true bread, but he's also the true satisfying drink. Just as God gave the people, and remember, God gave the people of Israel bread through Moses, but he also gave them water through Moses, right? Water through the rock. They drank of that, that spiritual uh, rock that followed them. <laughs> right? God, God gave them both bread and water to satisfy their physical cravings. And Jesus says, that's what I came to do for your souls. I came to satisfy your spiritual cravings. Uh, there's, an, there's a really important hermeneutical key Latent in that phrase right there, in that verse. Now, if you don't understand what I mean by hermeneutical key, I mean a key for interpreting the Old Testament. A really important principle of interpretation. And I don't have time to unpack this the way I want to, but what we see in this verse and what Jesus says about himself in this verse is supposed to shape the way that we read the Old Testament. Stay with me five minutes, okay? What this is telling us is that the physical realities presented in the Old Testament were given by God in order to direct our attention to greater spiritual realities that were coming. So the physical realities that God gave His people under the Old Testament were all given as pointers and signposts directing their attention to greater spiritual realities that were coming. So when Jesus says, yeah, Moses gave you bread to feed your bodies, but I came as the true heavenly bread to feed your soul, He is explaining to us how we're to interpret the manna in the wilderness. When Jesus says, I also came to satisfy the thirst of your soul, he is explaining to us how we are to understand and interpret the meaning and significance of water coming from the rock under Moses. It was never about the water. It was never about the bread, right? We've already seen this in John 3 with with lifting up the serpent on on the post, right? Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must also be what? Lifted up. That principle, right? What God pictured in the Old Testament with, with Moses lifting up that serpent on a stake, that was pointing forward to a greater lifting up that was going to happen with the Messiah. When the greater than Moses came, it wasn't just going to be a stake with a snake on it. It was going to be the Son of God being crucified to a tree. See, that, that's a...
2: Give my brain a moment to catch up.
1: This this is what I meant a number of weeks ago when I said that this chapter teaches us how we are to read the Old Testament. This is Jesus' commentary on what he says in John chapter 5 when he says everything in the Old Testament is about me. Not just in the explicit prophetical statements that are made about the coming Messiah. But everything is about Jesus. So we all recognize that in in like Isaiah chapter 9, right? Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Who's that talking about? The son of David. It's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the king. Psalm chapter 2, he's the king set on Zion, the holy hill, and he reigns over the nations. Uh, Daniel. Chapter 9, he's the one who came in to usher in a time of of absolute righteousness and atonement for sin and accomplishing all that was pictured under the Old Testament. That's all all about Jesus. But what Jesus teaches us here is that even the teaching about the manna in the Old Testament is about him. We see that in John chapter 2, the physical temple. Who is that actually about? It's about Jesus. John chapter 3, what's physical circumcision all about? It's about Jesus. John chapter 4, what what is Jacob's well in all the Old Testament forms of worship really all about? It's about Jesus. This is what's called, uh, theologians call this uh, typology, that in the Old Testament there are types and shadows that were pointing to greater realities that were coming and that have now been realized in Jesus Christ. There were types that were intended and designed to convey to us in a partial way the reality of something greater that one day was coming to take their place. Now, I hate to end on this, but this is how you read the entire Old Testament. This this is how um, there's there's an author, uh, David Murray. There's an author, author, David Murray, who wrote a book called Jesus on Every Page. This is how we find Jesus on every page in the Old Testament. Not just in those explicit prophetical statements, but in everything in the Old Testament. Jesus is the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system typified the reality that Jesus was coming to usher in. It all pictured atonement and being reconciled with God and having forgiveness of sins and being brought into a restored fellowship and communion with the Lord. All of that has now been realized through Jesus Christ. It was all a type. It was a foreshadow. It was a picture that was pointing to what Jesus was going to do. The promised land is a type and a foreshadow of a greater reality that the Messiah was going to usher in. Romans chapter 4, the promised land of the new covenant is not just a small tract of land in the Middle East. It's the entire earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus says. See, every, everything in the Old Testament, all of it, it was all a type and a shadow that was teaching us something about the Messiah who was coming. And so I pray, I pray that you'll take that to heart and that your reading of the Old Testament will be revolutionized by seeing Jesus on every page. Learn how to read the Old Testament the way Jesus is reading the Old Testament right here in John chapter 6. And your soul will be inflamed with joy, just as it was for those disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus began to explain all the things that were written about him in Moses and the prophets. May you go and find that glorious experience for yourself. Those of you who are not believers in this room, I don't want to be a negligent herald of the gospel and leave this time without calling you to repent of your sins and trust in this Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only atoning sacrifice that can reconcile you with the Father. He's the only sacrifice who can atone for sin and truly offer the forgiveness that your soul needs. He is the living bread that satisfies. Nothing else in this world will satisfy you. So why continue searching for things in this world to satisfy that longing in your soul? Jesus has said, I've come. I've come as the living bread. And all who come to me find that yearning and that hunger in their soul satisfied by what I offer. Come to Jesus, turn from your sin, and come to him in faith. You will find him to be a merciful savior and to be all that your soul is longing for. If you need help understanding what that means, you find one of the elders here at this church, I'm one of them, Grant Bostrom, Lauren Hubin, Chris Jones. You find a deacon here, Bill Butler, Eric Larson, or any other member of this church, and you ask them, what does it mean to come to Jesus? And we will help you understand what that means. But don't leave here until it's settled and until you're actually feasting on that true and living bread who came down from heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, what a mess things can often become. (laughs) But we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you instruct us out of your word and the way that you call forth faith from our hearts to rejoice in you, to believe in you, to hold fast to you, to live for you, and to wait upon you. Lord, we long for you, we wait for your coming, and we pray until then you would teach us how to feast on the true bread, Father, that you have given out of heaven. Teach us how to come, how to eat, how to drink, how to have our soul satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for this mercy, we pray for this grace, for your glory, and for our good. Lord, as we stand here to sing this closing hymn, May it truly be a song of praise lifted up from grateful hearts. A sacrifice and an offering of thankfulness given unto you by your people here. Father, we pray for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I know the best benediction to end on in light of that, but let me read from Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making... All things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. May we know the joy of going to that spring as many times as we want this week. There will never be any diminishing of its fullness.